0: I'm Jonathan Capehart and this is Cape Up. Robin D'Angelo is the author of White Fragility, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. It's one of the most important books on race and racism that I've read because it's written by a white woman for white people and she doesn't mince words.
1: I actually don't think that most white people care about racial injustice.
0: D'Angelo and I discuss how Amy Cooper's 911 call in Central Park was a terrifying addition to a history of white women's tears being weaponized against black men. We discuss the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and we talk about the broader concept of white fragility and how, if you're white, you can liberate yourself from it. As you will hear, this was a cathartic conversation for me, and you can listen to it right now. Robin DiAngelo, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I've been raving about your book, White Fragility, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism since I read it last year. And um, one of the chapters in your book is entitled "White Women's Tears," and I immediately thought of it uh, in in reaction to what happened in Central Park between Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper. No, no relation. Um, and you have a you reprise a vignette um, in that chapter where someone says to you, when a white woman cries, a black man gets hurt. And you go on to write, not knowing or being sensitive to this history is another example of white centrality, individualism, and lack of racial humility. And that, that vignette jumped out at me after watching the Amy Cooper video, because at least to me, it was clear Amy Cooper knew what she was doing. Those quote unquote tears and that quote unquote emotion were not real. From your perspective um, and as the author of this book, tell me what what you thought of what you saw in that video and how that plays into the overall research in your book.
1: Yeah, and you also notice that the more it becomes clear that they're not working, the more unraveled she becomes, right? There's something, there's a response that she expects to get that she's not getting, mm-hmm. right? So there's so much going on in that that scene, if you will. There's the sense of this is my space, this is our space, and you don't belong in this space, Right. Mm-hmm. And I am entitled to engage in this space in any way that I want. I don't need to follow the rules, right? So, in putting that back onto him, she actually makes herself the victim and her, him the perpetrator. He's not following a, an unspoken set of rules, which is not only not being in her space, but backing down uh, when she basically demands him to back down. When she, she uses his race over and over, so it's very clear she's not just calling the police and uh describing him even before she calls she makes it known and this is another great example of the lie of color blindness that we don't notice people's race and that it has no meaning so she's leveraging all of this and he just remains calm uh dignified and she again gets more and more irrational and I think in in large part white fragility is irrationality but it doesn't have to be rational and we don't have to be rational it just has to work so we can um, in one one moment invoke individualism why can't we all be seen as unique and different and the next moment oh we all bleed under the skin why can't we all be seen as the same they're contradictory narratives but that's really not the point the point is we need to silence uh, racism. We need to silence any calling in uh, of our positions, of our entitlement. And there, there's an, there's so much history behind this. This is this is another piece. White women's tears invoke a history of terror. I mean, Emmett Till. You know, is is probably the most amplified example of what happens when a white woman claims distress. In that case, he you know he looked at me. He whistled at me. And in the Emmett Till example, we also know that that wasn't true. Right. This, so much of this is based on lies, but up until recently, it's certainly been effective. And, and it reminds me of the, the whole Jim Crow, you will step off this, the curb when I come down the sidewalk. You will not look me in the eye as an equal. So there's just so much going on in that encounter.
0: And yet you know, there is so much going on in that encounter. And um, I, I, let's pull back a little bit because there's one thing I didn't mention in the intro. And for those who don't know, know about your book or might be hearing about it for the first time, and what impressed me about it so much is that you are a white woman writing about racism for white people and you are writing it to them, to write, there's, you even write in language where you're saying we and us and driving home this point. Why did you feel it was important to write this book and write it in this way?
1: You know, I, I came to this work as a well-intended, so-called open-minded, white progressive. And I often joke that I thought, well, of course I'm not racist, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> I, how could I be racist? And I applied for a job that I was in no way qualified for, but of course I'm white, so uh, I got it. And as an aside, I I have to ask you as a black man, if you ever roll your eyes at the mediocrity that white people get away with. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Apparently you do. Uh, So I applied for this job as a diversity trainer where I'm going to go into the workplace alongside people of color uh, and try to teach primarily overwhelmingly and often 100% white groups of employees uh, about race and racism. And that was a parallel process for me uh, because for the first time in my life, I was working side by side with people of color who were challenging the way I saw the world. And part of being white is I could be that far in life. I was in my 30s. I was college educated. I was, you know, a so-called professional and never had my racial worldview been challenged and certainly not by people of color in any sustained way. I mean you can get through an advanced degree in this country without ever discussing systemic racism so uh that was part one of the learning i was a lot like a fish being taken out of water but part two was going into these rooms filled with white employees and the hostility was just jaw dropping it was hostility, off the charts
0: hostility and how did it manifest oh,
1: it ranged from pounding their fists on the table complaining about affirmative action boy is that a well, white people <laughs> really i have a hard time handling that toothless program that's basically been dismantled at this point you know you'd be in rooms that were 100 percent white employees and they're complaining that white people can't get a job anymore and you're looking around going where are they you know, these so-called uh, people taking your job, your jobs, um, to the, you know, arms crossed, the refusal to engage, the refusal to agree to the ground rules, just, it, it just, you know, there were times when halfway through, we'd have to go, go to the management and say, well, we, what are we going to do? We can't proceed. And at first I was like a deer in headlights, you know, I i mean, I had enough, I have enough of my own socialization to recognize it, but I also was getting my consciousness raised by the experience and by the relationships that I had for the first time in my life with people of color. And over time, I just got better at figuring out how it was functioning because it's so predictable. It's like a script. It's so predictable what white people are going to say and do when the topic of race comes up. So I began to get more effective at speaking back to it. You know, I'm sorry, but racism is a white problem. It was created by white people. It is, uh, you know, um, yielded by white people. It benefits white people. It absolutely, of course, affects your life in profound ways. And you have a part to play in addressing the ways that it affects your life. But ultimately, the responsibility lies with white people. So we have to talk to each other because, you know, this is one of the dilemmas of implicit bias. Um, I think you understand the dynamics I'm talking about to a degree that I actually never will. I mean, from, you know, from the time you were born, you had to navigate this nonsense, right? It comes at you, uh, not from you. It comes from me at you. And yet the irony is white people tend to be a little more open uh, being challenged on it from another white person, there there is a way. Whereas yes, you know more than I do, I'm sure. But as an insider, I do have an angle on it that you can't have, and there's a way that I can name it that it makes it really hard for white people to deny. It's a kind of hey, you know, and I know, we know. <laughs> come on, and they, you know, they're kind of trapped, if you will. Um, So all of that leads to why, as a white person, you know, you're darn right I need to be talking to white people.
0: Now, in the book, you um, walk through and talk about um, individualism and how that plays into people, white people's moral view that racism is an individual problem. Versus not recognizing or not wanting to see that racism is actually a structural prob- problem and that white people, whether they know it or not, you pull, push and pull the levers of that structural racism to their benefit, given, the, given a particular situation. Talk about the individualism, how this idea that, ind- that racism is an individual moral failing took hold among white people
1: yeah and just before i do there's a piece i want to add to what we were just talking about about why my voice is important but i also want to say white people will never understand what we need to understand about racism if we are not listening to people of color and that's so much of what i can articulate comes from years of patient and brilliant mentorship from people of color so i just want to be clear about that um I don't know that you could have come up with a more effective way to protect the system of racism than reduce it to this very simple formula. A racist is an individual, right, who consciously doesn't like people based on race, apparently it has to be conscious or it doesn't count, who intentionally seeks to hurt them, has to be intentional or it doesn't count, uh, intentionally seeks to hurt people across race. Individual conscious malintent. And that definition not only exempts virtually all white people from the system we're in, uh, but I think it's the root of virtually all white defensiveness. Because if that's what I think it means to be racist, and you suggest I've just said or done something racist, um, much less that just by being white, there's no way I could avoid internalizing racist worldview, I'm going to hear you saying, um, that I am a bad person. That's going to land as a question of my very moral character. And now I'm going to need to defend my moral character. And, and I will. And we've all seen it. So how how will I defend it? Uh, insist that um, I am not racist. I could not be racist. I'm going to give you ridiculous evidence, right? Uh, I had a Black roommate in college. I speak several languages. My goodness, I've been to Costa Rica, um, Did someone really say that? Yes! Oh my goodness! I in the last year alone, two different people, two different white people, used as their evidence that they are free of racism, that they're from Boston. Wow! Yeah. I mean, this is the nonsensical, you know, kind of evidence that we that we offer up, you know, and actually, it's useful to look at that evidence because. Then you can ask yourself, well, if this is the evidence they're offering, what do they think it means to be racist? That this would be what they're saying proves that they're not racist. And then that helps you address it. So if you found my book really effective, it's because um, I kind of know what framework white people come from. And so you have to dismantle that framework. Right? Um, you have to challenge this idea that any of us could be exempt from the forces of racism in this country. And you have to help them see that and, and so on. And so then,
0: so that's the individual moral character. Then how do you get white people to recognize structural racism, one, and then their role, either you know, aggressively or passively, um, implicitly or explicitly, their role in perpetuating it?
1: You know, I mean, I I do have something going for me. It's either a book or if it's a presentation, I have a captive audience. Give me an hour and I can do it. It, You know, it's hard in a chat on an airplane. (laughs) Uh, But I overwhelm them with visuals, with metaphor, with evidence. I draw from examples that I think um, are very difficult to deny and most people will relate to. So, for example, women's suffrage, women's right to vote. You know, prior to suffrage, women could hate men all they wanted and be mean to men in individual counters, but they couldn't literally deny every single man his civil rights because their, their bias, which of course they had, everybody has bias, um, their bias wasn't backed by legal authority and institutional control, and men's bias was and is. And that is such a profound difference in impact that we really just have to have language that captures that. So I don't say everybody's racist. I say everybody's biased. But when you back my group's bias with that kind of power, it's just so profoundly different in its impact. So, so we have to reserve that. I I also talk about anti-blackness. I I used to be real careful. But when you speak out publicly on race and racism, you get a lot of feedback. (laughs) You get a lot of critique. You're not going to get it right by everybody. And one of the consistent kind of complaints, oh, this is just black and white. What about all these other groups? And so I try to be really careful. But at this point in my work, I'm really clear um, that there, there are two poles and white is on one end and black is on the other. And where your position in relation to those two poles is gonna shape how you experience your racialization. And the closer you are to blackness, the, even within that, the darker you are, the more profound will be the oppression. Um, and so there's just no way around that. Anti-blackness runs among people of color. And then I show a slide. It's like a single slide that starts with 300 years of enslavement, torture, rape, and brutality. And it's just so dense. Then the slide goes all the way down to voter suppression, you know, to the current time. It's, it's overwhelming. And it's like, it's a, it's a visual, like this is a system and your smiling doesn't interrupt it. Your niceness doesn't interrupt it. You going to lunch on occasion with a coworker of color doesn't interrupt this system. The only thing that interrupts it is strategic, intentional action. And there's no way you could not have been impacted by it. They may not like it, but it's hard to argue with.
0: Right. Could you give, and, you know, given the coronavirus situation, um, my, my, um, marked up copy of the book is sitting in my office. This is my husband's copy that I have here in my hand, um, which he doesn't read the way I do. So I don't have all, all of my notes in front of me. But I do recall you giving a couple of examples of how someone, I believe it was you, how someone could use, how they push and pull the levers of structural racism for their benefit, whether they know they're doing it or or not,
1: let me see it's not coming to me right now okay. um push the levers no
0: well I'm think, i, I I'm, I'm thinking of a um situation where say a racist remark is said, but no one said no one says anything
1: ah okay that's the classic <laughs> uncle 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 Bob at the at the dinner table yes so- so- Uncle Bob makes this racist comment and five people cringe. Um, But nobody says anything. Why? Because they don't want to ruin the dinner. Of course, now I would offer, why would interrupting racism ruin your dinner and not interrupting racism not ruin your dinner? But nonetheless, uh, they're trying to avoid conflict so they don't say anything. So what that means is Uncle Bob got to run his racism with absolutely no accountability and five people were out of their integrity. So he couldn't do that without their complicit or tacit uh, approval or agreement. And so when one of them speaks up, well, Uncle Bob might not like it. Uncle Bob might try to throw it back on them. You're too, you know, uptight. You need to relax. But nonetheless, for just that moment, Uncle Bob had to hear a counter narrative and and take some accountability for what he said. He didn't get to do it with ease or comfort. You know. individualism is such a powerful ideology and it's at play here too what what white people tend to do is think thank god i didn't say it right that's the racist not me no you are complicit with that racism you know there is no neutral place i love ibram kindy's saying the opposite of racist isn't not racist it's anti-racist mm-hmm. right i mean n- not racist is functionally meaningless. Can you think of any racist act that the person who committed it didn't claim that they weren't racist? <laughs> so it just has no meaning.
0: Right? I mean Amy Cooper even said in her her statement, "I'm not a racist." I'm sorry, what?
1: Yeah, I know. And you know, maybe it's more effective to to say, "Well, you as a human may not be racist, but you're acting in racist ways." Mm-hmm. If that's if that helps. I actually would say that before I even opened my eyes, the forces of racism, and let's be more direct, of white supremacy, the forces that uphold this ideology that white is the ideal for all humanity, that that is the human norm and everything else is a deviancy from that ideal. Those forces were operating on my mother as she carried the pregnancy right in that we could predict whether we were going to survive my birth because i'm white you know i might be a unique individual but i'm also a member of a social group by virtue of that membership we could make that prediction white people we have to start grappling with what it means to have a shared experience to to be in a culture that's sending the same messages to all of us so from the moment i opened my eyes um, the the forces that I'm ideal have been at play. I've internalized that message. There's no way I don't have a, a racist or white supremacist worldview. And therefore that I don't act from that worldview. Um, and that's actually liberating. That's liberating. Once you just start from that premise, because then you can just stop defending, deflecting, denying, and just get to work trying to challenge it, right? I don't feel guilty about it. Guilt is not useful, right? I mean I I imagine why people don't look that attractive to you uh when we're feeling guilty about racism, right? (laughs) Um I didn't choose to be Yeah, I didn't choose to be socialized this way. But I am responsible for the outcome of having been socialized this way. Um how is it coming out in my work, in my relationships, in my silence, in my solidarity right that that's my work that's where i get to be an individual is how it manifests specifically in my life but i am not exempt from it
0: Mm -hmm. and how do you just to follow follow this train so you know that white supremacy has had and continues to have an impact on your life and um you know all white people's lives but you're liberated from it because you recognize this when a lot of white people do not and so how do you go about the work of challenging that that of challenging white supremacy and that that white supremacist perspective that you that is around you and how do you get people to see it for themselves
1: yeah, well, so first I would say I, I'm definitely not liberated from it. It is a liberating or freeing yes. concept in the sense that then you can actually recognize it. That's yeah. what I meant. You yeah. recognize it. And that's, that's a piece is that you understand that you actually will never be free of it. You're not going to be finished, that it's lifelong, that every moment that I push against that conditioning, that conditioning is coming right back at me and that the forces of it are very seductive for white people. It's so much more comfortable <laughs> not to see this. You know, uh it serves us not to see this. And this is why I would say we white people cannot be trusted to determine how well we're doing, how down we are, because we're so invested in not seeing this. And and it's a kind of wily <laughs> relationship, right? Um, so we have to be accountable, you know, it's really for you to determine how well I'm doing in any given moment, right? In any given moment, am I, how am I behaving? I'm not just not racist, if that makes sense. Right. So, right. Um, I, I just think, Number one of going about it is the humility. Please, white people, have some freaking humility. (laughs) It's so complex. It's so nuanced. It's been going on for hundreds of years now. You don't know everything you need to know about it. Your learning isn't finished. Stop putting your opinions out as if they're informed and valid. They're not informed if you haven't devoted years of work and struggle on this topic. They just can't be informed because you, you just can't get the information in any mainstream kind of way, right? We're back to my point about graduate school in, in a law degree you could get and never discuss systemic racism. Mm-hmm. Journalism and never discuss systemic racism, right? In your training. So start there, hum, the humility of not knowing, and then start educating yourself, start li- listening. Um get involved in uh opportunities to to practice make mistakes, but learn and grow for them don't don't use those mistakes to shut down i, I kind of think about it as i as a result of this work, I do perpetrate less racism than I used to um but I still do on occasion <laughs> and I can give you a great example yeah, please. um and, and and let me add and when I do fall into it i've got I don't get defensive and I've got very good repair skills (laughs) and that has built trust. So many people of color in my life have said, we don't expect you to be free of your conditioning. Uh, We know it will surface on occasion, but what we're looking for is where can we go in those moments when it surfaces? And if we can't go there with you, we won't trust you. Mm -hmm. Right? So uh, I, in, in the book that I'm working on right now, uh, I had interviewed a friend of mine, a black woman, and she had gave me an example and she used the word and I'm not going to use it now. It's the D word. It's like the N word, but it's the D word. It's kind of an old fashioned term about how dark your skin is. Uh-huh. Okay. So she had used this like, you know, it's almost like the plantation days when the so-and-sos were supposed to do this. So I'm in this webinar. I'm um, having a dialogue with a black man and there's about a thousand people watching this webinar. And I just repeat this thing she said. So out of my mouth comes the D word. And I'd like to tell you that I realized it, I didn't realize it. You know, I just, and, and um, the person I was talking to later said, he kind of got a little bit of a, Ooh, and he wrote a note, talk to Robin about this later. And a few people wrote in like, Hey, that was, she just used that word. Is that, So we were going to have a follow-up webinar. So I had a week to think about this Um, and like, Oh my God, I just did a major microaggression in front of a thousand people. But I suppose that's important because I'm Robin DiAngelo and I'm not free of anything I'm talking about. So when we came back, I asked if I might um, have the opportunity to repair And the person I was talking to, Resmaa Menakem, said yes. And I apologized and I mapped out all the ways that what I had said reinforced white supremacy. And then I asked, just like the the last chapter in my book, I give an example of doing that with about a black woman's hair, a comment I made. I asked if I had missed anything or if there was anything else. And, And so we talked it through. And... Many people of color said about that and have said to me, what you did happens to us all the time, but that repair rarely ever happens. And it was powerful to see a white person really own, not just say, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry. And here's how I understand that that was problematic.
0: You know, um, you used a word that I use a lot in trying to under explain why we can't seem to get beyond these constant conversations on race that we seem to be having decade after decade and that word is trust um i as an african-american when i talk to my other african-american friends it's always about who who can we trust to have these conversations with and I have a few more than a few white friends who i can sit down and we can have those conversations but as a nation we're just we're just not there and what we're looking at what's happening right now in minnesota it's like that day that monday we saw both extremes both ends of of racism white supremacy on the one hand you had the quote unquote, benign view, what happened in Central Park with Amy Cooper. And then later that day, we see the uh, the way extreme to the other end of what happened with, with George Floyd um, with a police officer's knee on his neck. I refuse to watch the video because I can't just watch another black man being murdered uh, on video i've taken to calling it blackmail murder porn just people like soaking this up um how i don't know if you've watched the video but surely you've been watching and paying attention to to what's happening what do you say to to white people who look at what's happening in minnesota and are focusing on the burning buildings and the protests in the street, and not about what happened—the killing of George Floyd—that led to those expressions of anger.
1: Uh, I would say that if if people had been, if people are heard, if people have people who have exhausted every other form of trying to have a justice, resort to what seems like extreme means. If white people had as much emotional upset and reaction to the racial injustice (laughs) to the taking of black lives as we do to the taking of white property, you would not see looting or rioting, right? These, These are desperate measures, but I would also say that the news amplifies the looting part. In a way, it feeds whiteness when you do that. It's feeding all of these uh, deep narratives in the culture, right? I mean, we, we had the president just put in all caps the word thugs. All of that gets amplified when we're not paying attention to all of the actual protesting, all of the ways that people are trying to get heard. And I would just ask, what happened to us that we don't have an emotional reaction to him being murdered in front of our eyes, but we have an emotional reaction of some people taking some food out of a shop, right, Or, or breaking a window? If you don't understand systemic racism, you can't make sense of what you're seeing in any ways other than those that will reinforce whiteness and white supremacy
0: and what about um the 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 notion because there are there have been some some video and photos even the minnesota um state attorney general keith ellison put out a video wanting to asking if anyone could identify this this particular person dressed all in black with a gas mask and umbrella and a hammer breaking the windows of of the auto zone that is now completely destroyed you know, w- what about those folks who might be outside agitators who are doing who are committing acts of violence not at not because they're angry about what happened to George Floyd but because they're trying to advance another agenda um, that for a lot of people could be viewed as also perpetuating white supremacy
1: yeah I do think i I cannot know this, but um, I think we are in a political moment where um, white nationalism is flourishing, and we we have that kind of open support of that at the highest levels of government. You know, when people give a Nazi salute upon uh, Trump's uh, you know election, they' they're seeing something clearly that that they're excited about. Um, and so this idea about race war, these are also circulating conspiracy theories. So yeah, we we have to be really thoughtful about what we're seeing, and how we're interpreting it. And how does, how is it functioning? What actions are we taking based on that? So I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, we have no idea who that person was. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly saw, um, I saw a little bit of video clips of people in stores that looked like all racist to me, you know, they're gonna be bad actors that take advantage of those situations. Can we put the cameras back over to the people that are marching in the streets, to the things that they're saying? Uh, because that's all happening too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> last, last, last question, question
0: for, for you. And, you. you know, the United States is not a perfect country. Um, it, it was found, it, It's founding is based in white supremacy, um, we had the election of President Obama, which was a very hopeful election, his being the first uh, African-American elected to the office. But now we have President, President Trump, who is the complete opposite of him, um, hiring white nationalists to be on his staff, uh, parroting white nationalist talking points, saying racist things, Uh, in the Oval Office, in speeches, in rally, at rallies. Can we as a nation survive another four years with a white nationalist as president of the United States?
1: Um, (laughs) So now we're into the, the, the concept of hope and hopelessness. So I'm going to admit that as someone who is involved every single day in in racial analysis and in education, um, yes, I struggle with hopelessness. I actually don 't think that most white people care about racial injustice i really don 't if you If you show a video that 's very, very extreme, it might stir some feelings. But this has been going on all along. And as long as it happened over there and kept my equity up over here in my neighborhood, then that was okay. The only difference is that now we can videotape and document this and prove that it, that it is happening. At the same time as a white person, I cannot succumb to hopelessness that will only serve me and the racist project, (laughs) right? Great give up white person and what happens you it carries on your relationship to hope as a black man is totally different and you know that's for you to to come to terms with but i can't go there um so yes i'm deeply concerned about whether we can recover from this uh, because it's such a a brilliant project to uh, have people not trust the news i don't it's going to be hard to to come back from that. But what I can say, and I'm going to look at you, Jonathan, in the eyes and say, um, on behalf of my people, I apologize. And I want you to know that as long as I am alive, I will work uh, to wake my people up, to continue my own process and to see that we can recover. Um, And at least... At least when I am at the end of my life, I can say, I did what I could.
0: You got me with that one. Robin D'Angelo, author of White Fragility.
1: Take
0: your time. Author of White Fragility Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. I cannot thank you enough for your book, for this conversation, and for your apology. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to K-Pop. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.